Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Professor at the University of Cote d'Azur and Sports Performance Consultant, JB Marin. this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So JB came on the podcast in episode 52, which is nearly four years ago, so well over three years ago, which is far too long for someone of JB's stature, knowledge, experience, banter, everything. So it was great to get JB on for a second time. So we cover a lot of the things that we did in the first episode, but obviously a lot's changed since then. Um... Research has moved on, JB's thoughts have moved on. So we discuss false velocity profiling, and I actually asked uh, the Twitter world for some uh, discussion points that people would like to hear from JB. So a massive thanks to those who, who uh, direct messaged me and came forward with some ideas, some really good ones. So false velocity profiling, um, a lot of stuff around resisted sprinting, hamstring injuries, and foot and ankle strength, which is a really interesting topic towards the end of the podcast. So thanks to JB for coming on. Uh, it's an episode which I'm sure you love. I absolutely love chatting to JB and he's definitely one person that I need to catch up with in person because he's such a nice guy. So over to the episode with JB, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. It's very, very important to for me now to, to go and see people at the elite level because uh, if you stay in your ivory tower and you just focus on research and who publishes what and who tweets about what, uh, you have a wrong picture. Uh, and so when you go there and you talk to physiotherapists and you talk to doctors and you talk to SNC coaches, uh, you have the real life issues and you have the real life context. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs, sports first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a great team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to achieve consistent success on and off the pitch. So over 150 teams across the globe use Kitman's athlete optimization system to simplify daily operations and rely on the company's unique analytics to uncover the factors that influence success. So with these objective insights in hand, teams can now answer the most pressing questions and increase certainty in training and development strategies. Kitman delivers immediate impact and helps teams reduce injury risk, increase on-field performance and align coaching and performance staff. So each year, Kitman Labs hosts a one-of-a-kind event, the Kitman Labs Performance Summit. And this year's event is going to be held on the uh, on Wednesday, the 20th of March, at the Millbank Towers in Westminster in London. So I've just Googled that. It looks absolutely incredible uh, location to hold an event like this. So again, Kitman have produced an awesome lineup of guests from Martin Bushite, uh, Darcy Norman, and Jim Liston, the Director of Sports Science at Toronto FC. So if you are interested in attending, the guys at Kitman have been very, very generous to offer listeners of the Pacey Performance Podcast a discount of £75. So you can get to this conference for £100, which is an absolute bargain. Um, there's going to be links on my Twitter and also links to the, uh, to the podcast page on strengthofscience.com forward slash 227. 
This episode of the Pacer Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with JB Marin. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm delighted to welcome JB Marin for a long overdue part two. So welcome to the podcast, JB. Hey Rob, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks for coming on, mate, and making time in your busy schedule. So I know it's been, well, it's been what, uh, three years since we spoke? So I normally, if the part one and part two are quite close, I'll just say refer to part one, but because it's been quite a while, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction to yourself, uh, your background, education, and what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm currently a, a full professor at the University of Nice uh, in France. Uh, I'm also a consultant in uh, elite sports uh, science and training, and uh, my background is mainly sports science. Um with a PhD around uh, sprinting, sprint mechanics. And um, overall, my sports background is, uh, I practice many sports in competition, but uh, the main background is uh, track and field. Uh, I was a sprinter and a coach, amateur, uh, football, and now I'm a, let's say, cyclist, rider, uh, runner, if you prefer. <laughs> nice. So do you... In your, in your consultant work, I mean, we might not be able to go into this too much, but is it team sports or is it is it sprint? Is it spe- specifically track and field, triathlon? What where do you where did the consultant role lie? Or is it a bit of a mixture? Yeah, it's a, it's mainly sports where people sprint and jump, uh, basically. Yep. So, well, you, you have track and field, obviously, and you have all team sports, including uh, uh, sprinting and jumping. So, very happy to to go there and chat and get some ideas, get some questions. Get some uh, get some contrast between real life and research. Yeah, yeah. Are we all right to chat about that very quickly? Yeah, I mean it, it's very very important to for me now to to go and see people at the elite level because uh, if you stay in your ivory tower and you just focus on research and who publishes what and who tweets about what, uh, you have a wrong picture. Uh, and so when you go there and you talk to physiotherapists, and you talk to doctors, and you talk to SNC coaches, uh, you have the real-life issues, and you have the real-life context. So in my opinion, it's a way to ask uh, better questions. Uh, it's a way to challenge what we do, and it's a way, I think, to better design. 
what we do. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of influencing what that's what these recent visits um, that you've just explained uh, did for you, what how's that going to change your route uh, from what you'd planned in terms of research moving forward? Yeah, so I'm I'm going to take the example of sprint performance and uh, and maybe injury prevention or injury treatments. Uh, the main issue is that uh, uh, when people work with athletes, they work with individuals and they work with individual changes in everything. So uh, and when they read research, they see group results, and uh, we all know that group results can be influenced by individual variability. And for example. Um, uh, you can see some group results that totally contradict some of your single players' uh, behaviors. And, um, and the big issue is that people in the field, they work with single players. So uh, sometimes, uh, and we can talk about that regarding the next points, I mean, uh, uh, resistance training or injury prevention, uh, sometimes applying the group result research to a single player might not be effective if they're issue is specific and different from the issues uh, you see in the papers. You see what I mean? Uh, so, I mean, the big change in what we do um, is that we are going more and more to research things as a function of individual status on some key variables. You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So how does that, if you're reporting that in a paper, how does that go down with the with publishers and the research community? Uh, from now on, um, I think it's, it's, of course, it's going to be very different than, but we still have the group approach as a, as a start because it's the, okay. it's the reference yeah. in our field. But then we tend to discuss more and to display the data on a more individualized uh, side. Uh, and sometimes reviewers are not used to that. Uh, sometimes they are, but uh, eventually I think it's going to be uh, much better, much more detailed, maybe much more complex information. And uh, at the end of the day, the conclusions will be um, much less clear, maybe, but uh, much more true, mm-hmm. if you get that. So, yeah, yeah for now it's okay. I mean, uh, the... The reviewing game so far has been okay with that, so because it makes sense. I mean, and if you if you want to publish about sports science, because that's what we do, uh, I think it's it can only make more sense. So, from a practitioner point of view, that will give them clearer conclusions of of how that relates to their populations. Yeah, because age? it's yeah. because to me, um, and I, I really enjoy that. That sentence, um, uh, practitioners work with individuals. They don't work with group average. Group doesn't exist. So basically, you need to have, I don't say you need to have only the individual approach and only the individual results. I say you need to have the entire uh, thing. How does the group react? And within that group, how did individuals react? And within that, how did they react as a function of their initial status? When you have that, you have the entire, complete, open information. But then, of course, as a practitioner, you need to decide. So you need to say, okay, what, what's my individual like? What's my group like? Uh, what's the player I'm now treating like? But that's what good practitioners do. Yeah, absolutely. 
So first point that you mentioned um, a minute ago, and that is to get a bit of an update on force velocity profiling. We'll take it right back. This is something we discussed. I looked through the notes of what we discussed three years ago, and this is something we discussed. I mean, not it doesn't have to be to the day, but in terms of force velocity profiling, do you just want to give us a bit of a an overview of what it is, and then maybe roughly how things have developed over the last couple of years with the work that you guys have been doing? Yeah, sure. So basically what we call profiling means uh, building and assessing the, the individual uh, spectrum of the force outputs at various possible velocities of motion. Because we know that every load, every velocity condition is associated with a different level of force output. So from very low velocities, high force outputs, to very high velocities, low force output, that's the that's a rule of physiology, uh, people behave differently. And so what we brought with the AV spectrum analysis is that if you only analyze performance through a single load velocity condition, like you do a jump test or you do a 30 meter sprint, you have only one information. It's like you want to go and see a movie, but you only have a trailer or you only have the um, one image of the movie. You don't know the movie, okay? So when you do the force velocity spectrum for each individual, you have the entire movie, the entire story, and that story is very different between athletes. So, I mean, it's just a way of better uh, to, it's a way of going more in depth as to the force and velocity capabilities because we go through the entire spectrum. So we often show clear example of, for example, two players having the very same 30 meter time. So you might say, well, they are equal, uh, but in fact, they have totally different force velocity spectrums. So it's just a more detailed information. And the good thing that happened in the two last years is that we now have some very practical devices, tools, uh, iPhone apps, and simplified methods to monitor that accurately in field conditions. That's our, with my my uh, friend Pierre Samozino, that's our main objective, bringing accuracy to field condition practice. And that's a way of, of you know, mixing laboratory research and, and, and field research. So let's talk about them tools, JB. What are them and how have they developed over the last couple of years? So, uh, yeah, so basically the, the for both jumping and sprinting, the process was the same. We published some equations that allowed us to, to profile people out of the laboratory. That was the first step. Um, we confirmed these equations against reference uh, devices. And then some uh, Spanish colleagues uh, designed some uh, apps, some Apple apps, to measure the inputs easily in the field and then to use our equations because they were published. So one of these apps is MyJump, and there has been, I think, 12 or 15 validation studies always showing the same. It's really valid to quantify jump eight. And the other app is MySprint. I have absolutely no conflict of interest. <laughs> I make zero <laughs> money on what they sell. Now this, this needs to be said because, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know. And so, but when something is good, I, I enjoy, and I like to say it's good. And this uh, MySprint app does exactly the same. So these apps only measure accurately the inputs that are needed 
for our equations to calculate the mechanical outputs. So that's how it's done. So in terms of the force velocity profiling when uh, through a sprint, through, um, through the MySprint app, do you just want to tell yeah. us the process uh, people go through to actually do that and what meaningful um, results they're going to get off the back end so, and, and how that can actually inform training? Yeah. So basically, the, what the app does is just filming at 240 frames per second a sprint from the side. So that's a very uh, high level of, of uh, accuracy in the filming. Uh, that kind of camera 10 years ago in biomechanics was super expensive. Today, it's within an iPhone. Okay. So And from that, we can uh, have the split times. So we have the displacement as a function of time of the runner's center of mass. We take the hips as a reference. And basically, from these split times, uh, we calculate the horizontal force output, the running velocity, and we derivate uh, power outputs, the way the force is oriented onto the ground. And uh, <clears throat> because I find the app to be very accurate but not very user-friendly, uh, we have built an Excel spreadsheet that's public, that's uh, free, accessible. Because in that Excel spreadsheet, you enter the split times that the app gave you, and then you, you run the spreadsheet and you have the entire mechanical outputs. And the funny thing is that um, this app is accurate and the mechanical outputs are within 2-3% on average when compared to reference force plates. So uh, in, in the context of field research, I think it's very, very uh, cool that we have now these tools. Mm -hmm. So one thing that came through on Twitter when I'd mentioned that I was talking to you was a question around developing an optimum profile, optimal profile for horizontal force velocity. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's going to be um, uh, some news for your podcast listeners. Um, uh, we have computed that optimal profile. So the, 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 the idea is very simple. You can have the same power out, the same maximum power output, and the same thirty meter time, with very different force velocity spectrums. Okay, and our question was, does the force velocity spectrum influence your final performance? Because we know that for the same Pmax, we can have different profiles. We showed that clearly for jumping, and we wanted to show that for sprinting to test that for sprinting. Why is it important to, to test that? Because if it's irrelevant, if we don't care about your AV profile, uh, it doesn't influence performance, that's good to know in terms of training, right? But if it does, that's also good to know because then we know how to be more accurate in our training prescription, okay? So the good news is that yes, uh, Pierre Samozino uh, computed and simulated that profile performance relationship. And uh, I can say now, because we are about to submit the paper, that uh, yes, there is an optimal profile for sprint performance. It depends on the distance you want to optimize. So it will not be the same for a 20 meter than for a 60. And so depending on your actual profile and that optimal profile we calculate, uh, we have a better way to individualize and orient the training. You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so in, in the, yeah, sorry, in the paper, the funny thing is that in the paper, we take a 40 meter distance and we take the actual profile of Usain Bolt 
And we conclude that for his world record, his FV profile for that distance was not optimal. So it means that by having a different profile than he had, he could have run that 40 meter, that first 40 meter faster. That's really fun because it means even the best of us is not optimal in terms of his FV capabilities. Yes, he's the fastest, but it doesn't mean in absolute terms he was optimal. This is also very interesting in terms of, of uh, sports performance. It's not because he's the world record holder, then biomechanically, in absolute terms, it was uh, optimized. Was it optimal for the um, the combine sprint that he ran the other day in trainers and, and, and track pants? Yeah, that's that's part of the reason why we chose 40 meter. Okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's really cool. And I mean, um, the very cool stuff here is that to calculate the optimal profile using our equations that are going to be reviewed now, you just need the same inputs as the inputs you need to calculate the FV profile of Sprinter. So it means we can go back with existing data to dig and see, okay, what's what? Yeah, I understand. So in terms of optimal, optimal, yeah. optimal for who? Optimal so, for track yeah, that's very important. It's for anybody sprinting over a given distance. Like, okay. say, yeah. for, I, I will give you a very simple example. You want to do a 30-meter sprint, or you're a player and you need to do a 10-meter sprint. We take 10-meter as a reference. <clears throat> we, com we compute your actual AV profile just by a simple sprint test. And then we calculate the optimal profile for a 10-meter sprint. And then we decide, yes, no, are you optimized? What do you need to work on to get close to that optimal, et cetera, et cetera. So that's very, very, very distance dependent. And of course, individual dependent. And of course, it's linear sprinting. I admit that all our studies are not uh, COD oriented or whatever, but I think that if you give me 5% more linear sprinting, it's going to transfer to many, many, many parts of the game. If I'm a football player, if I'm a basketball player, you see what I mean? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even if it's non-sport specific, let's say, I would take it. Yeah. So just to dumb this down even further, force velocity profile, what does that... So in terms of translating that into what uh, the athlete needs to work on in training, just paint a picture for what that profile looks like and... Obviously, maybe two ends of the spectrum of yeah. what that will look like for, um, you know, then to develop one end compared to the other and then switch it around. Just yeah, give yeah. us a paint a picture for us. Yeah, I, I really like now to connect that to velocity-based training because I think the, the analysis of the profile is uh, velocity-based force output. We could, we could say it this way. So basically, in sprinting or jumping, the profile looks linear. It's clearly linear, even if the, the muscle cells or the muscle fibers have a hyperbolic FV profile. But when you do an, a global exercise, it's multi-joint, it's linear. And so it goes from your maximum theoretical force output down to your maximum theoretical velocity output. So then our uh, approach is to say, where is your weakness? on that curve, because that's your, let's say, signature identity. Uh, where is your weakness? What do you need? And what does your sport and what does your position or whatever 
uh, require. For example, if you're someone who does only five, 10 meter sprints, like a basketball player, maybe if you have a weakness on the V0 end, it's not going to be a big issue because your sport doesn't require a high V0. If you're the very same guy with the very same profile, but you're a 100 meter sprinter, then yes, you will need to work on that. This is why I really don't like the generalized conclusions in research because uh, if it works for some people in some context, it will not for other people in other contexts. So yes, context is king here. So that's why we really need to have an individualized uh, approach. Cool. So just to move on to the next point that I'd, <clears throat> excuse me, the next point that I'd um, kind of lined up for us to chat about, and that was resisted sprints. And obviously this is um, something that you're very familiar with, with you and the, and the guys that, um, that you work with. Talk to us a little bit about um, kind of where we're at in terms of the research and how that applies to actual practice, going back to what we said at the start, how the research has developed over the last couple of years and how that um, is going to be used or potentially used by practitioners that you're maybe consulting with or yeah. talking to. So basically, uh, resisted sprint is a way to uh, stimulate and work at different points of the velocity force or the force velocity curve. You see what I mean? So it's the most easy, convenient uh, way to sprint at maximum intensity and work at different levels of that AV profile. So very simply, if you use zero resistance, you will sprint uh, for a couple of seconds close to your V0. And then the higher the resistance, the closer you will sprint exercise to your F0. You see, so that's very simple. If you set a resistance for which I will run at three meters per second. So that's going to be very hard. And uh, you know, I'm going to be on the left side of that MV curve. So resistance is a way to uh, set the running velocity. All right, because there's a clear relationship. There's a linear tendency between load and velocity. I mean, plateau, maximum velocity. And uh, if you run at a given velocity and you do a maximum exercise, we know that the force output that you produce is at a given point in the AV spectrum, in the AV profile. But what we discovered is that the research was a bit uh, late there because until 2017, there had been some research on resisted sprints, but only with 10% body mass, let's say, I will not talk body mass, I will talk decrease in speed, okay? So 10% decrease in speed or 20% decrease or maximum 30% decrease. And there was no research on other parts of the spectrum. So it means that the complete left side of that spectrum, even the middle side, was uh, had not been investigated. And even to date, to date, there's only one single study using loads that decrease your velocity by more than 70-80%, which we call uh, heavy sleds or heavy loads. So we need time and we need more research to know uh, where we are going with that. But 
if you look at anecdotal evidence, because that's the funny thing with uh, uh, resisted sprinting, there's much more anecdotal evidence, coaches' experience, uh, feedbacks, blog papers' experience, than actual well-designed research. And uh, my job as a professor is to work in research, but I also give a lot of importance to anecdotal evidence, contrary to some of my colleagues who say it's just bullshit. Because <laughs> anecdotal, no, that's real. I mean, yeah, absolutely. every time you have a debate, you end up to the point of, okay, where is the scientific evidence? Come on, <clears throat> just wait. Let's listen to coaches who do their thing correctly with athletes. And uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence showing it works well when it's well-designed, et cetera, et cetera. In elite people, uh, one of my talk recently summarizes every single good blog article or every single discussion I had with an elite coach on how they use resistance. And they are very happy with that. So, of course, it's anecdotal. But it's some evidence, and it's we need to we need to reflect on that. Uh-huh. So one thing that when you when you Google resisted sprints, there's going to be plenty of like you say blogs etc. out there, and a lot do mention uh, percentage of body mass. Yeah. How can we decipher what that is in terms? Like we clearly moved away from that, but how can we? How can coaches read that and decipher what? is meaningful to actually take on board yeah yeah that's a that's a real big limitation is that of course uh, calculating the load as a person let's say let's let's say we use sleds okay Uh, calculating the load as a person the body mass has two limitations first it is not related to the the force output of people and second it can lead to very different resisted force we call that the effective force, the horizontal friction force, if you use that on different surfaces. So if you do a session and, uh, and the turf is dry or the turf is wet, the same person body mass will be a very different stimulus and you will run at different velocities. And uh, it's the same for squatting. Nobody has their squat program as a percent of body mass. Everybody has their squat program as a percent of their 1RM. At least, you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So why do we individualize the load in squatting or at the press as a function of 1RM? And why don't we do the same in resisted sprinting? So that's the first point. Uh, and so that's we go back to velocity again. Everything should be calculated as a percent of velocity decrement, velocity decrease. But to do that, we need to measure velocity. And uh, that requires some devices and blah, blah, blah. So uh, person body mass is a quite limited way of of setting the loads. And I must admit, we did that in some of our studies. And uh, the best way is to set the load as a function of the decrement in velocity we want to observe. So in terms of getting that... that max velocity, like say, say if you're in the gym and you're going on your 1RM, if you're not feeling too great that day, that that's going to decrease. The, the weight you're going to lift is de- decreasing. But the environment's not changing. Well, I'd, I'd assume it's not. You, the weight plates are the same. The bars are the same. You're in the same gym. Even yeah. if it's a different gym, it doesn't make any difference. There's still a flaw. But when you're yeah. outside, you could be on track. You could be on turf. That could change every single day. Yeah. It could be raining. It could be windy. Like How is all that them factors taken into account? 
yeah, with yeah. this method? It's definitely more challenging to do resisted sprint sessions than squat sessions, therefore, okay? So you have to try and normalize your conditions. Uh, I work with elite rugby clubs, and one of my PhD students now is in an elite club in France. Uh, they have an indoor facility, and they do all their resisted sprints indoors. So they first control for the ground type and the atmospheric type, um, and they systematically or almost systematically use a velocity device, such as a radar or this uh, app, to control the, uh, the stimulus, the velocity stimulus, and to check of course, we are not within 1%, but uh, you want to avoid being within 20%. Mm. All right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, definitely it's 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 a bit more challenging. So in terms of how that increase in load when using resistance resisted sprints, how does that affect uh, athletes mechanically, what their actual sprinting looks like? So... Uh, you need to be very. We need to be very careful between acute changes, which means how they run while pulling that resistance, and obviously uh, some things change. But uh, for some very highly trained athletes who are used to the load, uh, we've seen some uh, kilograms by Altis people in sprinters. You don't see much difference, but yes, uh, of course, the, the the running pattern will change when you pull a, a heavy load. Okay, so no discussion on that. But the big question is not acute changes, it's chronic changes. And to date, there has been no study on uh, heavy loads and how does the sprint pattern change. I mean, sprint pattern in terms of angle at takeoff, angle at touchdown, uh, knee angle, uh, elbow angle, whatever, trunk orientation, etc. There has only been some studies on uh, lighter loads. And uh, if you look at the studies and the conclusions, they conclude that uh, some angles change, some part of the pattern change, but um, you read that in, the, in these studies, it says that these changes are not adversely uh, interacting with the sprint performance overall. And uh, there's even one study where they say that the sprint pattern changes the same between no resistance and light resistance. But uh, we are now conducting studies on heavy resistance but I would say something very important. If the sprint pattern changes a little bit, like, I don't know, you open your knee a bit more before touchdown or whatever, how does that compare to potentially an improvement in performance? What do, what do we want? I mean, we want people to run fast, okay? So we have to put that as a balance between uh, changes in sprint uh, kinematics and changes in sprint performance because we don't know what's the optimum kinematics but we know that a faster player is a faster player mm -hmm. you see what i mean so yeah, absolutely. yeah we, we we really have to be careful with this uh this acute versus chronic changes of course when you pull some sets you go slower and you don't run the same that's that's no brainer mm -hmm. so everyone's looking like i mentioned before everyone's looking for the optimal so whether optimal force velocity profile, optimal this, optimal that, is an optimal load to use to develop these changes that we want to make? Uh, I would say no. What we call optimal load is just uh, the load at which you will run for a long distance for several seconds at your maximum power level. So the load that have you run in the middle of the spectrum. 
And maybe that was a mistake on our side to call that optimal because people think that's optimal for everything. No, it's only optimal if you want to work specifically for a long time over a 30 meter sprint, for example, at your maximum power. And our next paper will clearly show that. But of course, if you want to work on maximum speed, it's not optimal. If you want to work on the beginning of the sprint, it's not optimal. All right. So that's why we, we call that velocity based training in sprinting, because what velocity you want to target and then the load is secondary. The load is just a way to have you work at that velocity, depending yep. on what you need and what you want. So we're just going to take a very brief break in the chat with JB. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, more on hamstring injuries and a really interesting discussion towards the end about foot and ankle strength rationales, research behind it, uh, potential testing uh, opportunities, and of course, exercise prescription and practical application. But just before we do get into part two with JB, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a specialist gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And as well as obviously servicing the UK and Ireland, Black Box are venturing into the US, into Australia, into Europe. So if you are interested or on the in the market for adding to your current provision in your gym, or you want a complete gym fit out, which Black Box are well versed in, especially recently, make sure you have a little look at the website which is blkboxfitness.com. And I would also encourage you to check out their Instagram where they put a lot of their projects on um, so you can see the kind of things they're doing, where they're doing it and who they're doing it with. So they are on Instagram and Twitter at blkboxfitness. So really good guys, customer service at the, um, at the height of their priorities. So uh, a really good company and really good guys to get involved in if you are in the market. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. So, so one thing that I chatted to Nick Winkleman about a couple of weeks ago, and the podcast hasn't come out yet, um, and it was based on uh, a couple of Twitter conversations which involves Stu McMillan, which involved loads of different people. And it's something that I wanted to put to you. And it was it was technical mastery versus um, strength and symmetry in terms of um, mitigating the risk of hamstring injury. Where does your where does your head where does your mind sit with regards to that? I know it, everyone loves the versus, like everyone loves an optimal, but I'm just wanting to get a bit of a picture of where your head's at with regards to that kind of argument conversation. Yeah, so I think uh, 
related to uh, scientific evidence, there's no evidence. So it's all opinion. Uh, so I'm going to give you my opinion. My opinion is, mechanically speaking, if you talk anatomical uh, and anatomy and functional anatomy and biomechanics, I can admit that there's a safer way to sprint and there's a more risky way to sprint. This is my opinion. So then we need to measure that. And that's what we are doing now. For example, if you sprint and at at the moment of hip flexion and knee extension, so that's the end of the swing phase, your pelvis is tilted forward. It means that, so you have a forward anteriorly tilted pelvis co compared to a neutral position. Mechanically, this comes with an hyperextension of the hamstrings relatively. Okay, so all other things equal, that higher tension might be associated with a higher risk of strain. That's, that's, nobody can disagree with that. Okay, because, so if you sprint with that kind of anteriorly tilted pelvis versus a more neutral position, again, all other things equal, I think you have a higher risk of injury. All right, whatever your muscle strength, whatever your fascicle length, everything equal. So same thing for a touchdown a foot position. If you heel strike with the extended limb and your center of mass is way in front, you generate some torques and you generate some tension. So everything here is just a biomechanics analysis of the sprint pattern. What makes sense, what does not. And of course, there's anecdotal evidence. When I see some players running uh, and I don't know their medical record, and then I speak to the physiotherapist in charge or to the doctor in charge, it makes sense that the players with a very, 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 in my opinion, unsafe sprinting pattern have issues or have had issues. You see what I mean? So, so that's what you call technical mastery or whatever. Uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's something. But of course, now as a professor, I need to bring some data. So I need to do some measurements and I need to collect data on people's printing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's going to be the challenge. So just bringing back that right back to the first point that we chatted about in terms of the, what the research is doing and what the practitioners are doing. How can, how can in terms of this, this exact conversation with regards to technical mastery, how can they be brought together? Like you've got, I completely understand if you've got a two sprinters that you're working with and you can dive into the detail because you've got an hour a day, two hours a day, whatever with these guys. But when you're like you did, um, go to visit teams that have got 25 players, like how it just becomes a, a mess. And how, so how can, yeah, how yeah. can this, what, we're, what obviously you're looking to do, be brought back to that practitioner level yeah. on this conversation? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, to me, it's, it's natural that people gather because uh, practitioners sometimes complain about research not answering the good questions. And researchers like myself complain about sometimes practitioners not allowing us to answer the questions. Because to know if there's, for example, a risky sprint pattern, by definition, 
you need to monitor people and you need to do prospective studies. And that requires uh, uh, compliance, that requires participation. But so you basically need to find some people who are willing to work together, which means uh, willing to set some research, willing to have players doing what they uh, what the researchers want or need to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's a big challenge because the first the practitioners they need to accept playing the role of let's test our athletes, and the researchers need to accept uh, going there and testing athletes. So it takes time, and it takes some uh, people, humble people accepting each other. But um, I'm lucky enough to be to be starting that, to be doing that. So, but yes, it's it's a it's a very big challenge. But I mean, it's the only challenge worth uh, uh, working on, because otherwise practitioners will keep their opinion, good or wrong, okay, and researchers will keep their results sometimes unapplicable. Uh, you you know you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. sometimes irrelevant. Because <clears throat> when you test a hypothesis on sprinting, and the guys you test are not sprinting people, uh, it's it's really tough to conclude and to extrapolate. Because extrapolation is just playing the dice. Maybe you can extrapolate, and maybe you can absolutely not. <clears throat> cool. So one of the, well, I've got a couple of points to, to go through. Um, the first one was based on a, a little video of you, I assume it was you, um, that you, that you shared, <laughs> that you shared, um, of your foot and people seem to love looking at your feet. So, um, in terms of foot and ankle strength, and it's something that I've seen a, a bit of an increase in, in, um, the sharing of research around this. Um, but it's something that I wanted to get your opinion on, and yeah. why? Why the interest? Why the the increase in interest? Just for the anecdote, yeah. um, I'm a I've been a, I've been an amateur SNC myself in uh, track and field, football, basketball, and cycling, and I systematically had that work your feet and ankle, even for cyclists. I was a mountain bike rider, and believe me, at the end of the race, when you're cooked. If your foot cannot apply the force onto your pedal correctly and your heel drops and it's it's a very high uh, loss of effectiveness so i think it's key whenever the force is applied onto the ground so i've always developed some exercises and try and find some exercises that were stimulating the foot and ankle and this one the one i posted on twitter uh, had a crazy success because i think there's two things it's freaking simple I mean, all you need is your feet and touching the ground, which happens every day. And it's really stimulating. If you do it correctly and you challenge doing two or three rounds each side without touching in every, every instruction, it's going to burn, even if you have a good level. So I think the ratio between uh, simplicity and effectiveness of that exercise was so cool. I just posted that, you know, and then I had a discussion with Martin Buchet because he told me, oh, I remember um, an SNC coach teaching that to us during the masters. So it means, yes, I did not invent that exercise. Okay. But I think it's super efficient. And I think if you go with heavy bars and, uh, and elastic bands and all that stuff, maybe it's good. It's good stimulus. 
but maybe you, you overlook the basics, the very simple basics, your foot and the ground. And if that happens correctly, then you can move on to more, let's say, elaborate, complex, sexy exercises. So I think basically to tell it the way I think, and what we are doing some research now, I'm going to, uh, to maybe start a master's and a PhD on that. Whatever your strength, power, everything, if your foot, ankle is weak in, in transmitting that force onto the ground, you have uh, your limitation here. So, and I, I have seen so many athletes in basketball, for example, crazy guys, good squatters, everything, and they really sucked at changing direction, V-cut, uh, you know, back backpedaling, running uh, in different directions. So I think it's a underestimated uh, part of the performance. Mm -hmm. So you, you said it's purely anecdotal when you started talking about, is, is there any research out there? I'm guessing there is on, on different populations. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. So uh, there is some research on the foot itself, some very deep research with uh, intramuscular EMG, and I love that stuff. And uh, there are a couple of studies uh, very often in Japan uh, where you see some uh, foot strength or ankle strength programs. But I mean, when I say foot and ankle strength is very, very specific. For example, I don't consider, I don't know, uh, huddle plyos to be specific foot and ankle work. You mm -hmm. see what I mean? Yep, yep. It's, it's foot and ankle work indirectly through the plyo. But I mean, specifically foot oriented, there's not many research. But there's a couple of papers showing uh, improvements in sprint performance and uh, jump performance, if I remember well. Uh, that's a paper from 2004 or something in Japan. After a specific foot strengthening program, very basic, they, you just grab, grasp a towel with your toes, but you do that uh, sets and reps over a period. And there was an improvement, a slight improvement in sprinting and jumping. So very, let's say, low level of scientific evidence, but scientific evidence anyway. So that's just a stimulating track of improvement. Because I think that uh, the way you push onto the ground and the way you orient your ground reaction force during sprinting, that's key. It has to do with your feet, feet and ankle. Mm -hmm. So next question is, in terms of getting to know whether someone you feel someone needs this or not do you feel everyone needs this because it's something that is so neglected or do you think it is is there a, a way to i mean assess whether someone I, needs it or not yeah i really think everybody needs it and, um, first and foremost in terms of prevention uh, i mean if your feet and ankles are better at reacting explosively to the constraints you might have less issues. Uh, of course, I have no uh, meta-analysis on that. <laughs> but uh, I think everybody needs it where, when the sport is about applying force onto the ground or onto a surface. So you can apply that to any sport. But my opinion is that, of course, as for every profile, not everybody needs it at the same level. Some people are really good. Some people are really poor. And the big issue I have also is that when I say that, the assessment is my own eyes. Because to assess that, you would need to calculate joint uh, power absorption, power generation, uh, MTP joint, power absorption, generation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's very, very uh, 
not easy to measure. Okay, so that's just for now the eyes and the feeling. But uh, very soon we will put some some numbers on that feeling. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So so one last thing that was a late addition, but this probably should have come a little bit before, given what we, we chatted about. But a paper that's coming out, Computing Sprint Acceleration Kinetics uh, from Running Velocity. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, it's a replication study. So we validated that simple uh, computation method in 2016. We basically compare that computation to force plate data. But at that time, we only had seven meter force plate system in Paris at the INSEP. So uh, we had to reconstruct a 40 meter sprint acceleration by doing several repetitions, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. To collect the data for different part of the sprints, but during different sprints. And uh, the, the conclusions were that the simple method was okay, but we always had that, uh, that question and people arguing, yes, but it's not real sprinting single trials. So, and I was a bit pissed off about these remarks because yeah, you know, the study itself shows the good reliability, so it's okay to gather the data, but still, I agree there's a question. And uh, so basically to answer the question, we, we we generated some data. So we collaborated with Ryu Nagahara, it's a young researcher in Japan. Uh, he collected some uh, sprint data where we can synchronize during the same sprint, velocity output, that's the basis of our computations, and reference force plate data because he's lucky enough to have 50 meter force plate system. And so we did the same, that's a replication with improved study design. And uh, the very interesting thing is that the results came exactly the same. I mean, person by person, we have the, you can copy paste the tables and compare. We have the same final results. We have a better reliability between the two trials. uh, that's interesting because of the single approach and because it was trained sprinters. So basically, uh, we are going to submit that paper and it's just going to say, okay, uh, using the laws of motion and Newton's equations, we can calculate the macroscopic force outputs of the runner as a function of where from is velocity or position time data. And that's cool because it means you can do some stuff and you can get some information without a 50 meter force plate system. Nothing will ever replace a 50 meter force plate system, but you get me. Uh, few people in the world can do measurements on that. I was going to say, I bet there's not 50 meters of force plates in very many places across the world. Yeah, but there's likely iPhones or iPads uh, in almost potentially every training ground. So. Mm-hmm. That's the way we want to, uh, to, to bring that type of measurements. Superb. Well, JB, I'm going to let you crack on with your day. Um, and uh, I know you're a busy man. So just before we go, what's the best place to keep up to date with your research? I'm guessing ResearchGate is the, is the best way, plus obviously you've mentioned Twitter as well. Yeah, I would say uh, Twitter because everything that I publish or think uh, is tweeted at some point. And uh, the second place is uh, my personal website. Uh, the name is jbmorin.net. Yep. And that's yeah. where we spread the information. And there's some separate blogs and things on there as well, isn't there? No, no, no. Everything now is, my blog is included in my website. So it's okay. just a part of the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. So I try to 
to centralize uh, the sources of information. Yep, superb. And do you know your Twitter handle? Is it JB underscore Marin? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Superb. Well, thank you very much, JB. Really appreciate sure. it. I can't, I can't believe it's taken three years to get back on. But uh, yeah, really yeah. appreciate your time. Yeah, talking to yes, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, JB. Thanks for tuning in to episode 227 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with JB. Always great to chat with JB and can't believe it's been so long since part one, but hopefully it was worth the wait. So big thanks to obviously JB himself for coming on, giving up his time and sharing his expertise, but also Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. So thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate your constant support. Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week.